As you're turning to Romans 16, I'll share a little story with you. Years ago, I think I was in like Romans 2. So when I say years, I mean years. We were in an elder meeting, and one of the elders looked at me and said, I've been doing some math. And I said, it's kind of, that's a weird segue in our meeting, but okay. And he said, at the current pace that you are going through Romans, you're going to be done in 2024. And I'm going to have to hear the end of it from heaven. I told him this morning, today is our last exposition in this magnificent book. And he's still on earth. So I told him, you're going to have to listen to something else from heaven whenever that comes. Um, today's the last exposition. I can't let it go. So in two weeks, I'm going to be out of the pulpit next week. I'm leaving ACBC and then going to go visit my dad in Florida next weekend. And then uh, in a couple of weeks, then the following week, Tim Pasma is going to be here. And then the following week, I want to put a bow on Romans. That'll be our farewell to this magnificent book. This has just been a bomb to my soul. And I trust it has been to you as well. Romans 16. Verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me, and the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to the nations leading to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to be the glory forever. Amen. Would you bow with me? I find myself virtually overwhelmed as we read these words, our Father. In some sense, it's... Uh, kind of odd. It's a benediction. Some words of greeting. Pretty simple passage. But there's a, a treasure of theology and scripture and hope that lies behind these words. They're a treasure. They are our life. They're life-giving. They're life-sustaining. They are the life that will take us into eternity and through eternity. And this book has been such a grace to us. We thank you for it. 
Might you give us wisdom as we take a final look at the final passage this morning. And might it, like all the rest of this book, dig deeply into our hearts and compel us to come to you, the one who is the author and finisher of our faith, the one who alone is God, the one who is alone in wisdom, and the one who provides our salvation. Might this book compel us to come to you in delight, giving you glory. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. We don't write as many letters as we used to write, by and large. We tend to still write quite a few emails. And if you write enough of them, you maybe you have already adopted what might be called an automated signature. You don't even have to finish off. It just automatically dumps in a signature to your email and off you go. Or maybe you're trying to be creative with your sign-offs in your e- emails. I find myself almost always saying, hey, thanks, Terry. If you're really a close friend of me, I'll just give you my initials, TME. That's it. That's all you're getting. But honestly, that just seems a little shallow, right? A little impersonal. And so Inc.com has come to our rescue with 70 different suggestions for creative ways to sign off on your emails. You might, you might want something formal. All my best. Best. Best regards. Best wishes. Sending you the best. I think these are all the best. Congratulations. Faithfully, goodbye. Looking forward, regards. Respectfully, speak to you soon. Warm regards. Warm wishes. Warmly. Wishing you a wonderful day. Yours truly. You might want something friendly. Cheers. Enjoy your day. Enjoy your week. Happy Sunday. Happy Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Hope this helps. Make it a great day. Pleasure catching up with you. See you tomorrow. Sending you good vibes. You're the best. Your friend. Maybe you would need something appreciative. All my thanks. I can't thank you enough. I owe you. Much appreciated. Thank you for everything. Thank you in advance. Thanks for reading. Thanks for your help. You're a lifesaver. Or perhaps you have a humorous bone in your body. So you might sign it anonymously. (laughs) Congrats on reading the whole email. I need coffee. One step closer to Friday. So long. Farewell. Uh, Live long and prosper. I think this one comes from my daughter. Peace out. Tag, you're it. Or toodles. I've never used toodles. I think I should. I have done TTFN. You know that, right? Ta-ta for now. Oh, I'm so glad that we have some literary scholars in our midst. Oh, endings can be hard, can't they? Endings can be hard. You just want to, as you finish up, strike the right note to your note. And I don't know if Paul puzzled over what to say at the end of his letter to Rome. But I know he hit the right note. In the final seven verses of the greatest letter in the greatest book ever written, Paul reminds us of this truth. The revelation of God's salvation is for our good and for His glory. God has revealed to us 
himself and the salvation that he has provided for us. And that that is of immeasurable goodness to us. And it also brings him immeasurable glory. As Paul ends his letter this morning, he's going to give us two final reminders of God's glory, both of which, both reminders point to the significance of God's glory, his magnificence, his delight, our joy, our satisfaction in him. These are the, the final takeaway from the book of Romans. As we re- leave the book of Romans, this is what you should remember. First of all, he gives final greetings so that we might remember the grace of God to sustain ministry. He's going to go back to a number of greetings. So the first 16 verses were that list of 26 people, 24 of which he named by name. People that he was addressing in the, in the Roman church. And now, having finished verse 16, and he said, all the churches of Christ greet you. Then he had, I'll call it a parenthesis. Verses 17 to 20, where he had a final warning for the church in Rome. Beware of false teachers that might come in and lead you astray. And now he returns to his final theme of benediction and greetings. And I think he's going back to that last phrase at the end of verse 16. All the churches of Christ greet you. And he's starting to remember all of the people that have told him, Hey, when you go to Rome, say hello to them. Send greetings from. And he starts listing those people. Eight particular people. So he's identified 26 people earlier, and now he adds eight more to that list. This is, this is by far the most personal section in any of Paul's letters. The first one that sends greetings, verse 21, is Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. Timothy, of course, was his beloved disciple, his son. He calls him a child in the faith in 1 Timothy 1, 1 and 2. Timothy, of course, was converted through the ministry of his mother and grandmother. His father was a Gentile unbeliever, Acts 16 tells us. But his mother and grandmother were faithful to Christ. He was converted underneath them. And when Paul came through Derby and Lystra in Acts 16, 1 to 3, uh, Timothy came under his ministry and was, was attached to Paul and began traveling with Paul. He went on at least two missionary journeys with Paul. He was in Corinth with Paul as he was writing the book of Romans. He would later leave with Paul, go with Paul to Jerusalem, and then travel with him to Rome. And he was there in Rome while Paul was imprisoned. Both Philippians and Colossians tell us that Timothy was with Paul while he was in prison. Timothy himself was not in prison, but he was ministering to Paul in Paul's imprisonment. And of course, Timothy would become the elder and pastor of Paul's beloved church in Ephesus. First Timothy 1 tells us that. Here, Paul calls him my fellow worker. It's interesting, this one who was so affectionate to Paul. Undoubtedly, no one on this earth had as close of fellowship and intimacy and relationship with the apostle as Timothy did. Here, He identifies him not as a son, not as a child, but as a fellow worker, as someone who's worked alongside him. Given given his travels that they had shared together, their deep affection for one another, and the fact that Timothy endured so many things along with Paul, it's fitting for him to say that, as well as 
fitting to commend Timothy to the Roman church as well and acknowledging him as one who is faithful in the task of ministry. So Timothy sends greetings. With, we noted last time that that word greet is more than just to say, say hey to the folks in Rome. It's, it has this idea of hospitality. I send hospitality or I desire hospitality for these people to be granted to them. So it's, 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 a, it's a bigger term. It's a more affectionate term. It's a more substantive term. Timothy greets them, as do, he says, middle of verse 21, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. Lucius might be the same Lucius as in Acts 13.1. That's the only other occurrence of the word. We're not sure. Could be. Um, some are pretty emphatic. Some commentators are pretty emphatic. Yes, they're the same. And others are pretty emphatic. No, it's not the same guy. So we just honestly, we don't know. Um, history tells us that he may have become the bishop of the church in Sencrea. You'll remember Sencrea from the first verse in this chapter, that it was a sister city of Corinth, about seven miles away from Corinth. That's where Phoebe was. And Lucius, apparently, from history, not scripture, history tells us that he may have become the first bishop in that church. Jason was almost certainly the Jason of Acts 17. So in Acts 17, in verse 15, or excuse me, verse 5, we have the story of Paul in Thessalonica, the Jews becoming jealous, Acts 17.5, and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in uproar, attacking the house of Jason. And they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging out Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. That's why they were attacking Jason, because Jason was providing hospitality for them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is no other king except Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So Paul has been in Thessalonica. Um, Thessalonica is not far from Corinth. It's in the same province, if you will, and um, in the same region and likely had been to Thessalonica recently, and so he's sending greetings from that same Jason. So Sipater uh, almost certainly is the same same man as Sopatar in Acts 20, verse 4. Different names, but they're derivatives of the same name. So, so Sipater is William, and Sopater is Bill, if you will. It's just an abbreviation, nickname. Um, probably the same name same man. Verse 21, he says of these three, they're my kinsmen. Kinsmen generally in the gospels, when that word is used, means that it's a blood relative. It's really unlikely that Paul has this many blood relatives that would be known to the Roman church. He's used that same term a number of times in the opening verses of this chapter. It's also a term that he used to refer, uses to refer to fellow Israelites, and that's almost certainly the way he's using it here. So these men, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, are all fellow Jews along with the Apostle Paul. And of course, not just fellow Jews, right? But they are, they are kin not only in the flesh, but they're also kin in Christ. They have relationship and fellowship in ethnic relationship, and they have relationship in Jesus Christ. I always smile when I get to verse 22. I think Paul took a breath 
And I think he was kind of scratching his head and saying, okay, who else was it that I needed to send greetings to? And he had an amanuensis. An amanuensis is a scribe. So Paul's dictating and somebody else is writing on the scroll for him. His name was Tertius. I can't validate this from the text, but I think this is probably what's going on. This is, as Keith calls it, in the white lines of the text. Paul takes a deep breath, scratches his head and says, who is that other guy? And while he's scratching his head, we get verse 22. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Tertius is just just wanting to stick his own two cents in along with the Apostle Paul. And so Tertius gets his name in the scriptures as well. What's What's particularly important here or significant is how he greets them. So he's sending the same greetings that Timothy does. But notice he says, I greet you in the Lord. I send you greetings. I send you hospitality. I bring you fellowship. Accordance to our fellowship that is in Christ. Because we're united through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are of common faith. We have a a common fellowship with one another to send greetings. Gaius, verse 23, also sends greetings. Gaius, Paul identifies as a host to me and to the whole church. So evidently, Paul was staying with Gaius while he was in Corinth, but he was not just a host to Paul. He says he is a host to the entire church. We're really not sure what that means. It could be that the entire church in Corinth met at Gaius's house. That really seems unlikely given the size of the city of Corinth and how many believers were likely there. And it would have been really unusual to find a house that large where the entire church would have been able to meet. So it's possible that Gaius was the host of one of several house churches in the city of Corinth. And that, and as a host of that house church, he is sending greetings. Or it could be that whenever somebody in Corinth needs help, that Gaius hosts them, cares for them, provides hospitality for them, even as he is doing for the Apostle Paul. I think what is notable here is not just that that Gaius is hosting, but that that by means of the fact that Paul identifies him as a host, we understand that Gaius has some kind of means at his disposal. We don't know what it was that he did. We don't know his position in the culture. But we do know that he had some kind of financial fortitude, strength, ability to be able to care for so many in in his care. One last greeting, excuse me, two last greetings. Middle of verse 23, Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. City treasurer was something like a city manager. He was, the word literally means a steward. So the city has been entrusted to him for his care. So we might call that a city manager or a financial manager, city treasurer, What's interesting is that in Corinth, there's, there is um, an inscription on the road in Corinth, you can still see it today, that speaks of an Erastus and ad- identifies him as a commissioner of public works. And that title, commissioner of public works, is different than city manager. Two different Greek terms, two different responsibilities within the political hierarchy. Uh, but apparently that that other position, um, the, the commissioner of public works was typically a one-year position, so it's entirely feasible that he's just moving around in civic duty in the city of Corinth and held at different times both of those positions. What is important is to note that Erastus was a man of significant influence culturally in the city of Corinth. He is a man of civil influence. 
One last man that gives greetings, Cordus, the brother. Cordus. We don't know anything else about Cordus, although some have speculated based on this text that he's a brother to Tertius. How in the world do they get there? Because Tertius means three and Cordus means four. So they must be brothers because certainly there can't be one mother that would do, do that or more than one mother that would do that to her children. I don't, I don't know. I think somebody's out on a limb. Um, but those are interesting names, aren't they? Three and four, five and six, seven and eight. Eight names that are sending greetings to Rome. Compare the two lists of names. There are many similarities between this list and the list that begins this chapter. What's notable is that at the beginning of the chapter, the first 16 verses, there are nine women that are identified that send greetings. And all these are men that are sending greetings to Rome. And that's interesting. Honestly, I don't know what to make of it other than here the people he identifies are all men. What is perhaps more significant is that there is still a variety of roles, a variety of functions. There are vocational elders. There are laymen in the body of Christ. There are wealthy men. There are average men. There are socially prominent men. There are socially obscure, likely even slaves. So what should we make of this list? I think we can apply a lot of the same principles we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, some members may be less known, but no one is unknown. The Lord knows all these names. He knows who these people are. He not only knows their names, He knows every aspect of their lives. There's not one, one second of their lives that is unaccountable to Christ. He knows it all. And He remembers it all. And regardless of prominence, Every member has a role in the body of Christ. So there's the diversity of men, but they're all functioning at a significant level. I think what's particularly striking here are a couple of things. One is, it's a reminder to treat every member with the dignity and affection of Christ because every member belongs to Christ. As, as I read these verses, I, I, I read these verses many times this week, just going over it, trying to get a flavor of it, trying to get a sense of it. And as I read these verses, it just seems that there's an eagerness for those who are sending greetings to Rome to send their greetings. It's like, it's like they're saying, Paul, don't forget, don't forget. Remember to send greetings for me, Paul. Don't, don't forget to include my name, Paul. When you get to Rome, be sure to tell them that I'm praying for them, that I love them, that I care for them, that I'm standing behind them, beside them. Paul, send greetings for me. And there's, there's this affection. Even though they haven't met, a unity and a harmony and a delight. And I think that's rooted in another principle, and that is no matter how diverse we are as individual people, our unity in Christ is greater Oh, there's a, a vastness of diversity. As you read this list, though, really diverse guys. But as Paul identifies them, he doesn't identify any of them by their social position except one. Erastus. Everyone else 
He identifies by their spiritual position. And that's significant. He points to them as fellow worker, as kinsman, as host, as brother, as in Christ. In fact, Tertius makes that point in particular. We're in Christ. We're unified. And hasn't that been one of the delightful themes of the book of Romans? Romans 6. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because because you are in Christ, you're dead to sin and alive to Him and unified to Him, unified to one another. There's no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus, 8.1. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free, all of you, from the law of sin and death. And of course, chapter 12, he starts unfolding what we do because of that unity in Christ and how we care for one another and serve one another and practice our spiritual gifts with one another. In fact, as you read through the opening greetings in this chapter, as Paul is sending greetings to so many people in Rome, many of those greetings are on the basis of the position in Christ. So verse 2, he exhorts them to greet Phoebe in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. So there's a kind of greeting that comes because of our fellowship with Christ that ought to be done that would be appropriate to her and for her. Greet Priscilla and Quilla, my workers, fellow workers in Christ Jesus. So we're, we're bonded together working for and with Christ Jesus. Verse 7. Andronicus and Junius, outstanding among the apostles who were in Christ before me, and Pleiades, my beloved, in the Lord, Urbanus, fellow worker, in Christ, on and on it goes. We have unity and harmony in Christ. And brothers and sisters, we are a diverse group. We're different sizes, different shapes, different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different regional backgrounds. We, we look different, we act different, we talk different. Even though I got to Texas as fast as I could, I don't talk like y'all. I'm trying, but I, I talk different. I know that. But that's not our identity. Texas isn't our identity. Granberry's not our identity. Texas Ranger baseball fans is not our identity been a tough year where you shop is not your identity your job is not your identity in Christ is your identity oh there's a lot of different ways that we can relate to one another and we can share a lot of things we can share things that we that we like about one another we can talk about plants and house projects and sports and we can talk about the things that We have common interests in. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'll tell you what makes my heart sing is when I walk around and I overhear conversations. It's rare that I find you guys captivated by those things, but I hear you captivated about Christ. And you're talking before the service and after Christ, and it's spiritually oriented. It's biblically centered. It's praying with one another. It's praying for one another. Praise God, because that's our unity. That's what ties us together.
And that's what, that's what's going to sustain ministry. We were, we live and work in a perverse culture. And if we're going to make it, what is going to enable us to make it is the commonality that we have in Christ and nothing else. It starts with Christ and it ends with Christ. So Paul's final greetings seem like a throwaway. They're not a throwaway. He's reminding us of the essential nature of us being tied together. So Paul sends final greetings to remind us of the grace of God. And he gives us a final praise to help us remember the glory of God to establish life. What happened to the clock? Seriously. Okay, here we go. Um, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my notes on verse 24. Verse 24 has brackets around it. I'm going to explain that, but not right now. Read my blog this week. Promise. There's a final praise that he wants us to remember the glory of God. That's verses 25 to 27. And one is that God keeps us in our salvation. This is where that song we sang earlier, He Will Hold Me Fast, comes in. Now to Him who is able to establish you. Paul starts a sentence in verse 25 and doesn't finish it until verse 27. And the main idea doesn't show up until verse 27. And truth be told, it's not even a sentence. It's a run-on and not a complete sentence. And Paul just gets excited about this benediction of praise to God. And as he is heading towards giving glory to God, he reminds us first of God's ability to bring us to salvation and to hold us in our salvation. This benediction that begins in verse 25, as I mentioned earlier, echoes much of what is in chapter 1, starting in verse 1. As one commentator says, Paul ends the book where he begins it. Same themes, same desires, same emphases. So here he says, now to God, now to him who is able to establish you. What's interesting about that word establishment is he used that very same word in the introduction. 111. I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you so that you may be established. And in 111, it sounds like Paul's coming so that he can establish the church. So that as he pours out, as he ministers, as he teaches, as he disciples, that the church is built up. And here he reminds them, it's not me. It is the Lord God who will establish you. It is the Lord God who will bring you to faith, confirm you in that faith, and keep you in that faith. And how do we know that that's the establishment that he's talking about, the faith of the gospel, because that's the very next thing he says, to him who is able to establish you, how? According to or by means of my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now, when you hear the words, my gospel, don't get wrapped around and think, oh, wait a minute, Paul's got his own gospel. That's different from the gospel of Christ. No, remember, Paul is writing a missionary letter and he's saying, I want you guys to support me as I take the gospel to Rome. 
And so he's saying, I preach a particular gospel, but the whole book has been laid out to say, my gospel is consistent with what has always been preached about Christ, even as far back as the Old Testament, which is why Paul quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. Sixty times he quotes from the Old Testament saying, my gospel is the same gospel that has always been preached. And Paul here says, What will establish you is the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. There's only one thing that will hold you. And that's Christ and Him crucified. And that's got to be preached. It's got to be declared. It's got to be said with boldness and clarity and accuracy. And you just, you read that. And you, you just can't help but go back to chapter 10, can you? How will they, how will they then call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent just as it is written, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things? However, they did not heed, all heed the good news for Isaiah says, Lord, Who has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. It's got to be preached. It's got to be declared. It's got to be spoken with accuracy and with boldness. And it is that, when it is preached, that will bring you into faith and keep you in the faith. That's your bedrock. That's where you stand. Nothing else. What is this gospel that Paul will preach? Well, let me go back to Romans 3 and start there and exposit. Well, we don't have time. That was about a dozen or more sermons. The essence of the gospel is really simple. Romans 3, 10 to 18. I can't. I am a sinner that is overwhelmed by sin and I am incapable of saving myself. I have complete inability to do anything to affect my own spiritual change and to make me right before God. And God has every right to pour out His infinite wrath on me. And yet, we are justified as a gift by His grace Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 324. Oh brothers and sisters. That ought to make your heart sing. That God declares us to be righteous. Even though we are not yet righteous. Because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How do we get that? By faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith. 328. Apart from the works of the law. It is faith and faith alone by which we receive the gospel. And faith is no work. Faith in its own says, I can't. God must if I'm going to be saved. He must do it. I cannot. And chapter 4 is is a full exposition of that. And why does He save us? Therefore we have been buried with Him, 6-4 through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk, live in newness of life. We have been saved so we can be changed. Christ did not save you so that you can keep muddling along in life and digging through the refuse and the mud of your life 
and delighting in it as a pig might wallow in its mire. No, Christ died and saved you to set you free and pull you out of the mire and set you on the high ground and clean you and help you to walk in a new and fresh and living life. That's why he died. That's the gospel. And brothers and sisters, if you don't believe that gospel today, know that is your only hope. It was the only hope for the Apostle Paul. It was the only hope for the Romans. It is our only hope. And that is what has been revealed to us. Brothers and sisters, whatever instability we experience in this world, and there is a mountain of it. It just feels, to change the analogy, it just feels like we're experiencing an earthquake every day, doesn't it? But there's stability while the earth is shaking. And it's in this gospel that will establish you, hold you firm, confirm you, keep you. That's what's been revealed to us. There's another thing that's been revealed to us, and that is God himself. God has not hidden himself, and he has not hidden his salvation. Notice the middle of Verse 25, my gospel, uh, you're established according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. For a long time, back through the Old Testament and even to the beginning of creation, we didn't understand the fullness of God's gospel declaration And now it has been revealed. It's been opened. It was a secret, but now it's revealed and now it's exposed. And brothers and sisters, this gospel that God has deigned to show us speaks to us of the astounding grace of God. I want you to think for just a moment about the nature of God, the character of God, the substance of God. The one who is self-satisfied. The one who in his triune being is full, content in that triune relationship. In need of nothing, dependent on nothing. Not needing any sense of fulfillment for he is fully satisfied within that triune relationship. Creates mankind as a demonstration of His power. And that one has revealed Himself to us. The one who is immense and infinite and eternal is by definition unknowable to us who are localized, finite, and terminal. We cannot know Him except... He's opened, as it were, the curtain of heaven and said, here I am. Look on me and see me and my salvation. That's the one who's revealed himself to us, telling us about himself, making himself known and inviting us into fellowship with him. The revelation of that nature 
has been given to all men. Romans 1, 19 and 20. So that all men are without excuse. And the means of our salvation, God also put on display at the cross. That ought to stun you. I read that this morning going over my notes and wept in gratitude for this God who is unknowable by definition and made himself known. He's not hidden. He's available to anyone who wants him. His salvation plan unexpectedly includes us. There's a mystery that had been hidden, but now it's revealed. Paul emphasizes this idea of revelation three times in verses 25 and 26. Verse 25, he says, according to the revelation of the mystery, verse 26, now has been manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the eternal God, has been made known. It's revealed, it's manifested, it's made known. What is it that has been made known? The Gentiles are in. It's not just for Israel. Salvation isn't just for the chosen people. It is also for all the nations, verse 26. So that they too... Get an obedience that comes from faith. So that they too have faith in Christ and are transformed by that faith and start living obediently. That's, that's Paul's shorthand for the gospel. Paul reminds us that we've been grafted in. In a most amazing, amazing, astounding gift of grace. His salvation plan for Israel and the Gentiles has been made known. And because of all these things, He deserves glory. To the only wise God, verse 27, to the only wise God. That phrase can be translated a couple of different ways. It can be translated to the only God, who is wise, meaning that the monotheistic God is wise. Part of his character as God is wisdom. Or it can be translated, the only wise God, meaning all the other gods, gods out there are folly and foolish. There's only one God that's wise. And that's our God in heaven. Either way, Paul is affirming that God alone is God and He alone is wise. There is no one else like Him. Does that phrase sound like anything else that you've read in this book? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. His riches, His depth, His wisdom are unplumbable to us. How do we get that wisdom? How do we get into fellowship with Him? To the only wise God through Jesus Christ. 
That praise comes to God through the work of Jesus Christ. The Christ in whom the revelation of God's salvation plan is made is the means by which God is praised. So Christ gives us salvation. And then we praise Christ for that salvation. And that praise flows upstream to his father who planned the salvation plan. To this God, he says, be glory forever. God is glorious. He is majestic. And he receives glory. He receives our worship. Said John Calvin, there is not an atom of the universe in which you cannot see some sparks of his glory. Everything reveals his glory. And so we glory in him. To give God glory means two things. To give God glory means that we reveal God for who He is. We demonstrate that He is majestic and great. These are in those other doxologies of praise in this book, 837 to 39 and 1133 to 36. To say that God is glorified means that God is on display. Look at me and see me. For all of my wonder and majesty and greatness. But to glorify God also means that we delight in Him. We want Him. Because He is great, we want to have fellowship with Him. Brothers and sisters, the goal of the gospel is to get us to Him. Does He give us things? Yes. But we don't want what He gives. We want Him. We want the fellowship with Him and the unity with Him and the harmony. We don't want possessions in this world. We want fellowship in this world with Him and fellowship with Him in the next world. We were made for Him. Tony Renke, in his really helpful book, Competing Spectacles, writes this. Why do we seek spectacles? Why do we seek grand things? If you have a 32-inch TV screen, why do you need a 51? If 10 minutes of fireworks are enough, are nice, why do we need 15? If you have a stadium that seats 65,000 people, why do you build one that seats 100? Why do we seek spectacles? Because we're human hardwired with an unquenchable appetite to see glory. Our hearts seek splendor as our eyes scan for greatness. We can't help it. The world aches to be awed. That ache was made for God. The world seeks it mainly through movies And in entertainment and politics and true crime and celebrity gossip and warfare and life sports. Unfortunately, we are all very easily conned into wasting our time on what adds no value to our lives. Aldous Huckley called it man's almost infinite appetite 
for distraction. We're made to delight in God. So we delight in Him. I've told this story previously, but I just could think of nothing that fit this better. In late August of 1983, I was a college student living in Florida between semesters, about to begin the fall semester. And that month, that month, the space shuttle launched for the first time at night. And so a buddy of mine said, and I, a buddy of mine and I said to each other, hey, it's launching just a couple hours away. Why not? Let's go. And so we made our way down to the launch pad in Florida and found a position along with hundreds, I guess, thousands of other cars. I don't know. Lots of people parked along the side of the road looking at just a speck in the distance, looking across the lake to the shuttle queued up. Lights were on the shuttle as it was preparing didn't have cell phones and smartphones to tell us when it was going to take place, so we were running our radio and talking to the neighbors around us, seeing if anybody knew what was going on. And at 2.33 in the morning, the boosters ignited, and there was liftoff. And the, the sky lit up. It was just like that. That's not my picture, but that's exactly the way it was. 2.33, from darkness to light. I could have read a book out of that light. And five minutes later, it was gone. That's our attraction to the glories of this world that are temporal, temporal and fleeting. We want something awe-inspiring, but only one thing is worthy of praise. And that is the God who has revealed himself to us and brought us, us. Sinners were the only of death and Gentiles outside of the plan. He brought us into salvation. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for this really helpful reminder of the necessity of the church and the necessity of people and the priority of giving you glory. Oh, might we never forget of our unworthiness for glory and your infinite worth to be glorified. It is not pride for you to say, look at me, because you are the terminal end for which all things are created. We were intended to come to you, and nowhere else will we find joy but in you. So might we find that joy in the midst of a crooked and perverse world? Might we find that joy in you this week? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.